Lord, thank you for this evening. Thank you for the opportunity to come and study your word, guide and lead us, and show us what you would want us to see from this. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hosea chapter 12. Uh, Hosea is continuing his prophecy against the northern kingdom. The book right after Daniel. Thank you. The, the first of the minor prophets. So we're seeing Hosea continuing his prophecies against the northern kingdom, and this one really shows their answers. Hey, we're doing great. Leave us alone. <laughs> yeah. And you know, how many times have you witnessed to somebody, and they're just not ready to listen? And their answer is, hey, everything's going fine. I mean, I'm not, I'm not in the gutter. I mean, it's, I've, got, I've got a job. I've got a home. Everything's going fine. And God will be merciful to me because, I mean, I'm generally good. <laughs> uh, and this is, this is what we're going to read in this, in this particular chapter. Hosea chapter 12, starting at verse 1. Ephri Ephraim feeds on the wind and follows after the east wind. He daily increases lies and desolation. And they do make a covenant with Assyrians, and oil is carried into Egypt. The Lord has also a controversy with Judah. I will punish Jacob according to his ways, according to his doings. Will, I recompense, will he be, recompense him? So here we have God saying, Ephraim, the northern kingdom, starts out with feeding on the wind. This is a statement that they're looking at empty things, vain things. And it's kind of interesting, especially when we think back to maybe before we were saved or some of the people we know that are saved. And all they do is focus on empty stuff. And it, I look at this sometimes and go, how can you live such an empty life? And I can't ask them that because they're not going to accept that it's empty. But in their heart, they know it's empty. And, you know, we see this over and over with people that aren't following God they keep going after empty things, empty sins, empty directions. And I know part of it is they're looking for something. They're looking for an answer. They just don't realize that the answer is God or don't want to accept that it's God because they'll see people that are godly and living a you know, happy life and they'll still not be ready to seek after God. A lot of it is because of their preconceived ideas of what that means. You know, the first thing people think of is if I follow God and I become uh, religious is the word they like, even though I don't like it, but I, and I become one with God, then I'm going to have to give up all my sins. Well, yes, that's probably true that you will give up your sins, but it's not because you become religious, it's because God comes in you and changes you from the inside out. And, you know, I'll tell them many times, did I say anything about giving up any of your sins? God wants you. Now, I know they're going to give up sins eventually. <laughs> you know, God's going to get hold of them and they're going to give up their sin, but I don't want them to think it's something they have to do because nobody wants to give up their sin when they're, before they know God in the first place. People like their sins on one side, even though they don't like their sins, but they think this is where they're getting what little happiness they can get out of their life, even though they're following after vanity. And he says, Ephraim is following after vanity uh, or feeds on vanity and follows after the east wind. Now, for this area in Israel, the east wind was a terrible wind. It came blowing across the desert. It was stifling hot. It was 
scorching wind. It was, um, it killed the plants and, and made people uh, uh, oppressed. And it was a terrible, terrible, terrible thing. There was not a nice cool wind. It was not a nice easy wind. And he says, they follow after the east wind. Now this is pretty bad that you're following after oppression. You're following after misery. But I have seen many people that are doing this. They just do everything they can to seem to be, to be miserable. Uh, and it's like, well, I'm so terrible, everything's so bad, and all this, and I'm going, well, what caused, well, this, and going, have you ever thought about stopping that? Oh, no, I can't stop that. Okay, that is making you miserable, but you won't stop what makes you miserable. Uh, and it's kind of, you know, interesting. You get somebody who's, who's an alcoholic or, or a drug user, and it's costing them everything for their habit, but they won't give it up because they get that little bit of pleasure out of it for a few hours, and then they work themselves to death to get the next, the next fix. And this is what God is telling Ephraim. You're, you're feeding on emptiness, and you're following after oppression. And too many people do this. And it says, and they have made a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. In other words, they're making a they're making covenants with their enemies. They're making a covenant with Assyria to help them against Egypt and with Egypt to help them against Assyria. Uh, you know, and this is kind of a funny thing. They're taking the enemies because those are the two big nations at this point. Egypt is on the downward side of their, their rule. Assyria is rising. The Assyrian Empire is the one that's going to conquer the northern kingdom very shortly after this, these prophecies. And they're trying to make friends with them. They're trying to get... Uh, by, their, by their help. Hopefully they would help, each, you know, help against the other opponent and maybe they would forget about them and fight each other. Uh, not going to happen. Uh, Assyria is going to take Egypt out of the picture and they don't worry about them. Uh, so here we have this and it says, the Lord has a controversy and this literally means a dispute. God says, I have a dispute with you, Ephraim. Um, and I will punish Jacob according to his ways and according to his doings, will he recompense him. And this is kind of interesting. According to his ways, talk about his walk, his path. Right? And according to his doings, what are his deeds? Right? There, there are some times when we walk one path and do something else, especially maybe as a Christian. We say we're going to walk the path of, of uh, following God, and then we do everything according to the flesh. And in this case, these two match, match. Their ways and their walk are both against God. And God says, I'm going to re recompense you. I'm going to give you the reward that you are due. And this is something that people don't realize. Um, many Christians don't realize there are consequences to sin. And I say this all the time because I want us to understand. When we sin, there are consequences. And God is telling them, you're going to reap what you sow. The way you walk, the things you're doing, you're going to get a reward for your, what you sow, or a rebuke in this particular case. And you know, this is something we have to be cognizant of all, at all times, is we reap what we sow. And God is trying to get the northern kingdom to understand you are sowing idol worship, you are sowing 
evil to one another. You are sowing all these bad things, and there is coming a reward. And the problem with God's work sometimes, if you want to call it a problem, is the world looks at it and says, well, I instantly didn't get spanked the moment that I did something wrong, so God, God doesn't care. He's blessing me. All these good things are happening. <laughs> Therefore, God is not God, and he is not disciplined me, and I'm going to get away with it. And this is something that you might say is a problem. God's mercy and grace to let people continue to come to him without hardship makes people think they're getting away with it. And we all do it. You know, uh, well, I did this and I instantly didn't get in trouble, so God's okay with it. You know, God's okay with me cheating this person. God's okay with this. God's okay with that. Uh, and we have to be careful. If we are violating God's word, God is not okay with it. Even if he lets us get away with it <laughs> for a long time, he is not okay with it. He is going to bring that judgment upon us, and this is where they're at at this point. Verse 3, he took his brother by the heel in the womb, and by his strength he had power with God. Yea, he had power over the angel and prevailed. He wept and made supplication unto him. He found him in Bethel, and there he spoke with us. Even the Lord God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial. Therefore turn you to your God, Keep mercy and judgment and wait on your God continually. So here he's giving the history of Jacob, or a small portion of the history of Jacob. Right? Uh, so it starts out with, he took his brothers by the heel in the womb. This is where he got his name. Jacob means heel grabber or trickster. <laughs> and so when Esau was born... He came out first, and Jacob had him by the heel, even as an infant. And that's how he got his name. And he's going to live up to his name. All his day, huh? He's heel, grabber. heel grabber or trickster. Uh, you're, you're, and it's a negative idea of heel grabbing. It's to trip them up. All right? So it's not just I'm grabbing this person's heel. I'm trying to trip them up and do bad, which is where they come up with the trickster or, or troublemaker. Well, he's always been that way. Yeah. Uh, so, and he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna take the, the uh, right of the firstborn. He's going to take the blessing from the, of the firstborn from his brother. So even, even as an infant, he's grabbing his brother's heel. And as, an, you know, as he gets older, he's doing everything to trick. Then he gets and goes up to Laban, uh, and he finds somebody who's as good at tricking as he is. And there's a battle between them for, for, four, uh, for almost 20 years where Laban gets most of the upper hand. Now, Jacob comes out with a lot of possessions in the problem. So it's, Laban doesn't win completely, but he gets the better of Jacob on many of the instances that happen on him. Uh, he says, you, you were that way. And then he says, you had power with God. And this is the story of him on when he wrestles the angel at Bethel. He leaves, he runs away because he has cheated his brother for the last time, and his brother says, I'm going to kill you as soon as dad dies. Now dad's going to die a long, long time from that event, but his mom says, uh, get out of Dodge before your brother, 
brother gets out there and she goes, I want you to go see my, my brother, my, my family, and get, a, and get a wife from up there. And that's what she tells uh, Isaac. Uh, I don't want Jacob marrying one of the women in this area. I want him to go up back to Haran and marry, marry a supposedly godly woman. Uh, we find out that she, she worships, both of them worship idols as well. Uh, so they're not really godly. They're not following the same, same activity. But Jacob's mom is just trying to get him out of, out of the area and say, uh, no, none of these girls, we get them up there where, where the family is. You know, we'll get him up there in the family where at least they believe like we do, supposedly. <laughs> so he leaves on his way up. He sleeps one night. His head's on a, on, a, on a rock. And he wakes up and he sees a, as defined in the King James, a staircase into heaven. Most people believe that he saw a pyramid with the, the steps up the pyramid like you see on the, the ziggurats uh, with angels ascending and descending. And in the process, an angel comes to him and he wrestles with the angel and in this chapter, it tells us very clearly uh, in verse 5, even the Lord God, Lord God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial. So he wrestles with God. Or in this particular case, most people, he, he wrestles with and pre-incarnate Jesus. And he's, he was doing a good job with, it, with him. He wrestled all night with Jesus. And... It, uh, is it apparent that he had him in a hold or some form? And he goes, and Jesus says, let go of me. And he goes, I won't let you go until you bless me. And he reaches out, touches his hip, and puts it out of socket. Which is a very painful thing. At least when I see my mom's hip out of socket, she's in a lot of pain. And he spends the rest of his life limping uh, because of this event. And so... Yeah, they did not have doctors, doctors to pop that thing back into joint. So he was strong enough to wrestle with Jesus all night, Jesus just I would say Jesus led him. Okay. Jesus is God. Yeah. Jesus is God, and, you know, and he proved it at the very end. He took his hip out of socket. I mean, he could have unmade him. He could have made him weak. Uh, but you know, he was a strong man, and he was doing things, and, and that's how he gets his name Israel, the one that prevails. All right? I think it really was to show him how weak he really was when it came down to it. Okay. You know, you think, you think you're being something. You think this has been, been good. You know, let me show you. I could, have, I could have ended this a long time ago. Oftentimes in sports, if a team is really superior to the other team, they'll play with them. Sometimes they play with them to their hurt. Uh, but they'll kind of play with him. They'll give him a little bit. They'll take it back away. They'll give him a little bit and take it back away. You know, and, you know, it's really insulting. Uh, and I think that's kind of what this was going on. Jesus goes, I could have taken you at any, at any moment, uh, Jacob. And Jacob, but the key on this was Jacob asked for a blessing. He goes, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And so he took his hip out and still blessed him. <laughs> So, but it really shows that Jacob's heart was looking for something. He's still thinking trickster in this case. I'm stronger. I've got you. You're going to bless me because I'm going to hold on to you till, till you bless me. And he finishes the, he finishes the wrestling match with him taking his hip out and says, and I'm going to still bless you. And it's a beautiful story. If you want to read the whole story, go back into Genesis 25 and Genesis 30, 32. <laughs> 
and you see and you see that see that uh, story going on. Uh, so we're having here. Jose is reminding the northern tribe of their history. And remember, they've had hundreds of years where they have not been paying attention to their history. But they get enough of their history to know it. And he's reminding them very simply what, what's going on. He says he found him in Bethel. And Bethel, of course, means house of God. Beth is house and El is God. So it's house of God. And that is what Jacob names the place. He goes, surely I have been in the presence of God and that this is his house. And he calls the name of the place Bethel. And that's what it's named ever since. But it says in verse 5, you know, oh, and there he spoke with us, even the Lord God of hosts, the Lord is, the, is his memorial, God. Because Jacob immediately set the, the stone pillow up on its side and made a memorial and said, this is the house of God. And, huh? Yeah. Well, remember, when he ran away from home or left home, he, he left. All right. His brother's wanting to kill them, and he's wanting to get out as fast as possible, so he left with nothing. And so when it was bedtime, he probably had a, 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 a little blanket to sleep with and used, and used a stone for, for a pillow. Not the most comfortable pillow. No, they weren't making stone. They weren't selling stone pillows. Yeah, we, we have a special for you today. Buy your stone pillow. <laughs> no, he just had no other pillow, so he used the, the rock, the stone for a, for a pillow. Um, and then it says, therefore, turn you to your God. Literally, turn back, return to your God. And so here's Hosea saying, people, turn back to God. It's time for you to turn back. And his, his point was, you know, Jacob, Jacob got blessed. But, he's, but he knows that they know the story. Jacob limped for the rest of his life because of that wrestling match. And, you know, and he's saying, think back. God is your memorial. He is what you're looking at. Turn back. And then he says, keep mercy and judgment and wait upon, on your God continuously. Now, I find this very interesting that it says, keep mercy and judgment. And you know, that, that sentence jumped out at me to try to figure out what it was meaning because mercy means not getting what you deserve. Judgment is to get what you deserve. And I was thinking this is very strange. So I was thinking about this and I really think that God is saying judgment has to be tempered by mercy. And when we know God and we're following God, judgment is tempered with mercy and without God, judgment is not tempered by mercy. What verse is that in? Uh, six. Six. Yours probably says goodness or kindness, loving kindness. Love and yeah, love. Yeah, I don't like the new versions calling mercy love. Uh, it can mean loving kindness, but it means so much more than loving kindness. Um, but that is kind of good in here because it's really what it's talking about. As Christians, as believers, our judgment should be tempered by love and mercy. 
know, but the really interesting thing, when I looked it up, because I was curious on whether I was on the right track, I looked it up in five different commentaries, and none of them even bothered to look at mercy and judgment. The words that jumped out at me, none of the commentaries cared about. You know, because I was thinking, mercy and judgment, what a combination. You know, he says, keep these. And again, when we're following God, mercy tempers our judgment. When we're not following God, and we're seeing it in our courts now, in our, in our country where godly decisions aren't being made, we're seeing very harsh decisions being made for those that they want to punish. And so there's not much mercy, there's not much kindness going on without God. And this is man's nature. Man's nature is to attack and destroy and, and tear apart and make myself look good by making everybody else look bad. This is the way of the world. And this is why we are to build up and edify each other in the body. It goes against our human nature and we get to you know, build somebody up. And it's so, so church is supposed to be, when you're with, with the body of Christ or the ecclesia, the gathering of like-minded people, which is what the translate is church. When we're with the church, we should leave church feeling built up because we've been loved and people aren't tearing us down. When you're with the world, the world is always wanting to tear down and make themselves look good. You know, especially if you're, you're male, that's how you're raised. You know, you've got to make yourself look good and tear everybody else down. That's the world's way of being male. And you know, we've got to be careful with this. Don't listen to the world. Don't be filled with the world's attitude. Build up, edify, show love, show kindness. Many times that is what's going to set apart the Christian because Jesus said in, or we are told in the New Testament in 1 John, that they will know that we are, uh, Jesus said, we'll know that we are his disciples by, because we love one another. And John said that we love him because he first loved us and that we will be known by our love. Church individuals should love. And then people look at that love and say, you guys are so different. Maybe they're going to say you all are so weird. You know, you know, I don't know how you can love these people. And it's like, and they may not even recognize it as love. They're just going, you're being nice to them. You're not, you know, you're, you're being kind to them. Uh, huh? Well, that's the other thing. They first thought, their first thought is, what are you playing? What are you, how are you trying to play me? You know, you're buttering me up. Wait, what is going on? And we've even been asked that at times. You're giving us this stuff. What are you wanting in return? Nothing. We just want you to know that God loves you. And I'll do that a lot when I hand out these boxes of food and everything. Number one, I make sure there's a track in them. And then I'm going, this is a gift from God to you. To try to bring them back to who they are and understand that it's not just, you know. And I've had people even ask, well, what are you going to expect later on from us? Nothing. Well, I do have an expectation. I want to see them come to Christ. But that's not why I'm giving it to them. We're giving it to them to edify, to help, and to get them know that the church reveals God's love to them. This is why on the end of the month dinners, we don't make a big deal out of it if somebody doesn't come to church. Now, obviously, I'd like them to come to church before they show up for the food. But, you know, the goal is just to teach people that God loves them and minister. And, and be able to reach out because if they're in that building, we can share Christ with them. We can share Christ's love with them if they're in that building real easily. 
Yeah. And so we have all of that going on, and it says, keep it and wait on your God continuously. Now, I don't know about you, but I have problems with that verse. So, you know, I do not wait on God continuously. Now, I do wait on him frequently, <laughs> maybe even a lot. <laughs> but Hosea is talking to people that don't can wait on God at all. They're worshiping idols, and they're happy living in their sins. They're going to him, you know, hey, everything's good. Just leave us alone, Hosea. You know, you know we're, we've got crops out there. We've got abundance. We've got all these things. And you keep telling us God is bringing judgment. And we are being blessed. Now, they don't realize that their blessings are not God, and it's God's mercy allowing them to be blessed during this period of time. But they're not following God at all. And God is saying... It's God's mercy. They're not getting what they deserve. And God, unfortunately, I guess, in one sense, allows this blessing to go. David, even in the Psalms, goes, why do the heathen rage and and get away with stuff? In in a paraphrase. And David gets mad. He goes, I've been righteous and I don't have all the stuff. Look at all the blessings my enemies are getting and, and your enemies, God. They're getting blessed and you're not doing anything about it. But the key to this is we have to be careful with that attitude. Number one, we really don't know what the heart of the person is who seems to be getting blessed. And think about when before you got saved. Maybe people thought you had your act together and you, everything was going good, but you, know, you knew better. You knew you weren't happy. You knew that things weren't, that you didn't have the blessings that everybody thought you had. You know, how many of these very wealthy stars and, and athletes that are stars, they, have, they seem to have everything. They have the big house, they have the money, they have the servants, they have a following, they're famous, everybody knows them, at least knows their public persona. And you think, well, they've got everything, they should be happy. And the next thing you know, they're, they're killing themselves or they're in drug rehab or alcohol rehab because they still, even though it looks like they have everything, they know that they're not happy. And this is the one thing we need to be aware of. When somebody looks like they have everything, but they don't have God, there's problems inside that they're not showing people. And if you really got to know them, you'd realize this person is totally unhappy. You know, and you're thinking, man, I just, and I've, and I've heard, well, give me their problems. I'd love to have their problems. No, you wouldn't. You'd be, you'd be even worse off, you know, if you can't trust God where you're at, you're not going to trust God with a lot. You know, and that's the thing that people have to understand. There's all these Christians who say, well, I, if God, you know, I love it. If God gave me a really good job, I'd tithe. Well, if you're not tithing now, you won't tithe with a big job. If you're not honoring God now, you won't honor God if you had a lot of stuff. You know, and this is the key that God is saying here to them. Get, get your act together. Get your act together. And so, verse 7. He is a merchant, and, and the balances of deceit are in his hand, and he loves to oppress. And Ephraim said, Yet I am become rich. I have found me out substance. In all my laborers they shall find none iniquity in me that, that were sin. And I that am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt will 
will yet make you dwell in the tabernacles as in the day of the solemn feast. Okay, so here we have Ephraim speaking, and God says, he is a merchant. Literally, this word here is not merchants, it's Canaan. What? It's Canaan. He is Canaan. Canaan was a sinful people. So I do not know why they came up with merchant here. This is the only place where the word, Hebrew word Canaan is translated merchant. So I'm going to say he is Canaan. Canaan was the son of Ham that was cursed by Noah. And Canaan is the people of the promised land that were conquered by Israel and totally supposed to be wiped out, even though they didn't do it because of their sin, their abominable sins that they had committed. And so he says, he is uh, Canaan. The balances of deceit are in his hand, so the scales of treachery are in his hand. The northern kingdom was doing whatever it took to get wealthy. And this is something you see even in our day. Uh, you know, salesmen are taught to lie. Technically, they're taught to tell you what you want to hear, which is lies. <laughs> uh, but this is where he says he's a merchant. The balances of deceit or treachery are in his hands. He will do what it takes to make himself the winner, to get what he wants. C-A-N-A-A-N. Uh, so he says he is deceitful. He is treacherous. He loves to oppress, literally to extort. All right? And extortion means to get what you want by falsehood, for, by like loan, huh? like loan sharks, threats, actual, actual physical attacks. Yeah. Uh, extorting means you're going to get what you want by threat or by actually hurting somebody. So this is the land of Ephraim. Everything's going good. People are extorting one another. They're uh, deceiving one another. And when you're in that place, not everybody is as good at it as others. <laughs> you know, so while they're being extorted, there are certain people that are really being hurt by all of this, and they're not happy with any of this. And then there's some people that are on top of everything. They're, they're cheating everybody. They're making lots of money. And they're the ones saying, hey, everything's good. Hey, look at this. Everything's good. I've got lots of money in the bank. I've got, you know, if I, if I want a little more money, I'll just go oppress that person over there and, and I'll have more money because I'm stronger and meaner than they are. I've hired more bodyguards. I've hired more, more, more thugs. Uh, and so this is what was going on there. And it says, Ephraim says, yet am I become rich. This is their answer to Hosea. Hey, I'm rich. Everything's good for me. I've got money in the bank. My fields have got crops in them. Hosea, I don't know what your problem is. If God was really judging us, we'd have the money would be gone. The, the crops would be burnt down or, or, or uh, stolen or we'd have a famine. You know, what's wrong with you? How many times do we hear these kind of statements? Hey, everything's good for me. You know, quit, quit telling me about how bad things are going to be. Well, you know what? God hasn't closed his books. And this is something that even we as Christians have to understand. On this earth, God has not closed their books. You know, this would be like the plant, a farmer plowing his field, 
fertilizing his field, planting his seed, and then saying, oh, well, I'm nothing but a loser, before he waits for the harvest. God has not closed the books. He has said, the field's planted, you've, heart, you've, you've fertilized the, the fields, and then you've planted the seeds. Wait for, them, wait for the crop. Wait for the crop and see what is coming. Wait and see the blessing that will c- come to you for honoring me. Israel is saying, well, I've got all this stuff. They're kind of doing it backwards. They, they, right after harvest, before they planted and har- everything, hey, look at all my wealth. I've got, lots of, I've got lots of food. I've got lots of stuff. And God says, yeah, but next year you're going to have to plow the fields and, and fertilize the fields and plant. And we need to be able to understand when we get to heaven, God will close the books. When we die and we stand before Jesus, the books will be closed and he'll show us all the rewards or, or lack of rewards we have. And the lost will be, you didn't know me. You thought you had everything. Hell is your destination. And God closes the books after this life is over, not before. And we need to understand that. When people are telling us about how good they have their life without God. Well, number one, we know they're lying. All right, we know they're lying. Deep down in their heart, they know they're lying. But God has not closed the books. So even if they're not lying, God has not closed the books and they haven't come to the place where they find that it is empty. More than one person has said, wealth is empty, fame is empty. I got everything I thought I wanted and I found out that it was empty. And this is where they're at. They're chasing the, the wind. They're feeding, they're feeding on the wind. They're chasing after the east wind, which was the start of this. Eventually, they find out all the stuff they're chasing after is empty. Now, while you're trying to get there, it doesn't seem as empty. You know, it is empty, but I've got a goal. You know, if and when I finally get there, <laughs> everything will be good. Everything will be perfect when I get there. I'm willing to sacrifice now. You know, I'm not happy doing all this work to be the top of the, top of the heap of the business, of the company, but when I get to be the top of the company, everything will be worked out. I'll have a good income. I'll have time for my family that has abandoned me because I ignored them while I got there. Uh, you know, but everything, we sacrifice everything to get there, and then we find out we have nothing still. And this happens over and over again, which is why Paul tells us, I've learned to be content in whatever state I am. If I've learned to be content where God has placed me, then I'm in Christ and I'm going, all right, God, I don't know what you have planned, but thank you. Thank you for where we're at. And then he can bless you greater or less, whatever it might be, and you're still content because your contentment is in Christ. And these people are not in that, in that place. Uh, Ephraim says, I have become rich. I have found, out, found me out substance or wealth. I have found wealth. And you know what is their big deal? Wealth. You know, everything's good. I've got grain in my barns. I've got a nice house. I might have servants. I might have people uh, taking care of me. And then he says something very interesting. In all my labors... They shall find no iniquity in me that were sin. It's kind of an interesting statement. What iniquity is not sin in the first place? He goes, he's going, they will find none iniquity that is sin. 
So in other words, they're saying you're going to find some iniquity, but none of the iniquity that you're going to find is sin. Sound a little bit like double talk, like we get around in our day and age? You're going to find sin, but it's not sin. But isn't the definition of iniquity sin? Yes. Oh, yeah, they knew that. But how many people do you meet in the world that know they're sinning but say they're not sinning? All the double talk. And it's kind of interesting because we read this stuff and it, it's like, it's just like today. You know, hey, you know, I know, I know, you know, everything I'm doing, everything I'm doing may not feel right, but it's not sin. I know that it's against my conscience, but it's not sin. Yeah, I know, I knew that it was wrong when I did it, but it's not sin. This is the kind of double talk we have going on in our world today. It's almost like, um, pray for your, pray for me, so I don't believe in God. Yeah, or I'm an atheist, but an act of God tore down my house. It's all God's fault, but I don't believe in it. Yeah, it's God's fault that all this happened. I don't believe in God, but it's God's fault. Uh, our world today is in the same ballpark. They have ceased to accept truth by God's definitions and therefore, anything goes. And this is where we hear constantly, it is so hard sometimes to listen to people and hear diametrically opposed statements coming out of their mouth. And you'll ask them, sometimes I'll ask them if I'm in an in in argumentative mood, which, which of those statements is true? And they'll go, what? And this one and this one that you just said, both. But they're opposites. Yeah, but they're both true. Uh, the sun is shining brightly, but it's dark outside. You know, uh, you know, and they'll believe both statements. Uh, they'll, believe, they'll say something like, you know, we really think children are important, but you know, I can't have this child at this time, so I've got to abort this child because it's going to interfere with my life. But children are really important. He says in verse 9, And I that am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt will make you to dwell in tabernacles as in the day of the solemn feast. So God is saying, I'm going to bring you back. I am going to bring you back. I am going to put you in tabernacles. And this is a reference to the 40 years of wandering where they were rebellious. And God says, okay, you don't want to be in the promised land. We'll let you wander for 40 years. And the solemn feast that they're talking about in this particular solemn feast is the Feast of Tabernacles, which celebrates the wandering, wandering in the wilderness. Now, when the northern kingdom was conquered, Assyria took them out of their land and put them in other cities. And the northern kingdom did not return at the Babylonian captivity. They were they're basically gone for all practical purposes. Some of them would some of them would because they were still being Jews. And then at the end of the Roman Empire, when Israel was spread out all over the world we had another period where they were in wandering, you know, where the Jewish people were in wandering. And in 1948, they were brought back to Israel. And it's very interesting that many Jews in this world are wanting to go back to Israel. You know, and it's amazing. Even here in America, they're wanting to go to Israel. Some of them just to celebrate, but some of them want to move to Israel. And in many countries where anti-Semitism is strong, they're going, I want to go to Israel. That's where, that's where I'm supposed to be. And God said that he would call his people home. You know, he says, I'm going, I'm going to call them home. God is going to gather all the Jewish people 
together in their home territory so that he can protect them during the tribulation period. And we're seeing more and more people going to Israel all the time. And I think it's going to intensify in the near, in the near future because God says, I'm going to call my people together. And so we see this coming on. And he says, I am the, God, the Lord that took you from the land of Egypt. And he says, I will make you dwell in tents as in the days of the solemn feast. And I don't know if you understand, but in the Feast of Tabernacles, the Jewish people, for a, for a week, build these lean-tos and tents outside their houses, and they, live, they sleep at night in these lean-tos. Not in, the Not in their house. They're, they're celebrating in, outside because it is a celebration of the wandering in the wilderness. So they go out. They're supposed to eat their meals out there. And sometimes they'll go in during the daytime to get into the air conditioning and everything. But they sleep in here. They have their dinners out there. It's a reminiscent of the days of the wandering in the wilderness. Why are you celebrating Because it's to remind them that after the, after the wandering in the wilderness, they entered into the promised land. Uh, and you know, how many Christians live in the wilderness? They refuse to enter into God's rest. They refuse to enter into it. They want to strive. They want to work. They want to struggle. You know, and it's like, would you just cross the Jordan River? Would you just cross into the rest of God? And, you know, and when we rest with God, it is so much nicer than arguing and fighting and, and working to perfect myself. And I've said this to so many Christians. You know, how's things going? Well, I'm, I'm trying real hard to follow Jesus. And I'll tell them often, well, quit trying. Be crucified. Be crucified. You just rest in him and let him change you. Quit working so hard. Get into the promised land and rest. That's the problem. We're fighting against our flesh and we're going to lose that battle. If we don't let God crucify our flesh, we're going to lose the battle with the flesh. The flesh is strong. And unfortunately, most of us feed our flesh more than we feed our spirit. You know, we might read our Bible in the morning. And that might be the only time we read, you know, focus on God. And then we watch our soap operas and our movies and we read our books and our romance books and we watch the, all the murders on TV and all the shows of the, the, the murder and we watch people sleeping together and committing adultery and then wonder why we have bad thoughts in our mind. And this is the problem with our entertainment today. Now, the entertainment is not different from the others, uh, but you had to go out for most of the entertainment in the past. Uh, in the Roman Empire in Paul's day, you had entertainment that was terrible. You know, you got to actually watch what we see on TV being done live. All right? Uh, and it even went so far as to recreate battles where the slaves literally killed each other during the battle scenes. And then... For entertainment, they watch gladiators killing each other and killing animals or killing, killing uh, uh, prisoners. That was entertainment. To watch these people get killed was your entertainment. Much like today's TV, and we're not sure if today's TV is real or not. You know, some, you know, most of it is not real, but in those days it was real. And I will say that it won't be long until some of these activities on TV are going to be real. I'm okay with the people that, that be killed if they know that they're reenacting because they know they're going to die. Like, what are you doing that 
because they don't understand the impact of what they're doing? Because what does is, what is Hollywood say they're doing? They're reflecting culture. They do not believe that they are influencing culture. Um, and so they influence culture to get worse and then they reflect it back to them at a higher level. Uh, so they take a magnifying mirror and say, you're doing, you know, uh, from the 60s, you guys are sleeping around and committing fornication. Let's now take it to the next level on, a, on the mirror and we'll take it to fornication and then we'll take it to lesbianism and then uh, homosexuality and then we'll take it to actual killings of each other and they just intensify their reflection. So they're influencing what happens. But this is the way Satan works. And the, you know, and the people watch these things like, oh, wow, I, I, I just really, really enjoy this. I'm, I'm mesmerized by it. And you know, this is what I am finding now as God has changed my attitude. I look back at some of the shows I watched in the 60s and 70s, and I'm going, how could I have ever watched this show? And I'm not talking about awful shows. I'm talking about the 60s and 70s shows that were, for the most part, by today's standards, good. But I'm looking at it by God's standards and saying, I understand how we got to where we are because we allowed little things into our mind. You know, the little foxes that were talked about in Ecclesiastes that come in and pollute and destroy. And then because we get used to something, we want more. This is how we get into drugs and alcohol and even adultery and fornication. We get away with it the first time, we feel good. Get away with it the second time and feel good. Third and fourth time, we stop feeling good. We may still be getting away with it, but that one drink doesn't give me a buzz anymore. That one pill didn't give me a buzz. So now I've got to get two drinks. And then three, four, five, you know, I need to, you know, quit taking the pills and actually shoot up. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, I have, you know, the, the one, the one, the one uh, fling a, night, a week wasn't enough. Now I'm going to have to try to do it every night. And it intensifies to get, to try to get that thrill and after a while, we no longer have the thrill, but we have the addictive nature of the sin that keeps us caught up in that sin. All sin has an addictive quality to it, which is what keeps us in it. Some of them are literally physically addictive, but even things like sexual impurities have an addictive quality to it. And we need to be careful of that because sin will capture us through that addictive nature on it. Which is why all sin is the same sin, is the same problem. It all takes us away from God. It all takes us deeper away from him. So all sin is a problem and has the same answer. God. <laughs> Turning my life over to God is the answer for all sin. Now that's easier said than done, but it is the answer. Uh, I'm getting in the habit of telling lies. Knowing God and knowing truth is my answer to that. You know, whatever my sin is, I'm really enjoying gossiping. You know, I really like people knowing that I know things. You know, my pride is puffed up because of it. The answer is God and his love and his caring for people. So we need to be very careful about all these things. And they're saying, we don't know, you know, hey, we have no problem with this. We don't have any iniquity. You know, we're not sinning. Verse 10. I have also spoken by the prophets. I have multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. 
Is there iniquity in Gilead? Surely they are vanity. They, they sacrifice bullocks in Gilead. Yea, their altars are as heaps in the, furrow, heaps in the furrows in the field. Jacob fled into the country of Syria, and Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he kept sheep. And by a prophet of the Lord, the Lord brought Egypt, Israel out of Egypt, and by a prophet was he preserved. Ephraim provoked him to anger most bitterly, therefore shall he leave his blood upon him, and his reproach shall his Lord return upon him. So here we have God finally getting to them. He says, hey, verse 10, I have spoken by the prophets, the real prophets, not your false prophets. Uh, I have multiplied visions. And he says, and by uh, similitudes or comparisons by the ministry of the prophets. God is saying, I am sending you prophets. Now, they killed most of the prophets. They drove them away. But God says, I keep sending prophets your way to tell you the truth. In our world today, there is a remnant that speaks the truth of God, even though the world doesn't want to hear it. Do you realize in the Middle East right now where the Muslims reign the, you know, virtually super, supreme, many Muslims are coming to Christ by seeing visions of Jesus. They're really, because many of the Muslims are truly looking for God, they're just looking in the wrong place, so Jesus appears to them and says, and it's always the same words, go see the people of the book, which is Christians, those that follow the book, the Bible. It says, go see them, they've got the answers that you're looking for. And we have all of this, and God says to the, is the northern kingdom, I keep sending you prophets. I'm giving you multiple visions. And to make things really easy on you, I'm giving you comparisons. <laughs> you know, your sin is like this. All right? And that's what he's talking about, comparisons. When Jesus came and gave, the, gave these prophet, you know, parables, the people would be able to see. Jesus' stories were something that people understood. He talked about the sower sowing seed. That was something they were used to watching. Okay, well, yeah, I watch farmers all the time throwing seed out there. And yeah, some of that seed goes on the fertile ground. Some of it goes on the sides where it doesn't grow. Some of it ends up on the, on the pathway. It was something they go, yeah, we understand. We know exactly what you're talking about. When Jesus gave the parable of the prodigal son, that was a story that they were well aware of. They knew that story. Now, Jesus changed the ending of it the story always went that the prodigal ran off, wasted his money, realized he has nothing, came back to the father, and the way that the Jews told that story, the dad made life miserable for that son until he proved that he was re truly repentant and probably never repented of it and just made him a servant. And Jesus turned that story around and said the father made him back to be a son. Now imagine, you're listening to Jesus on that story. You're going... I always, I always thought it was a good story. <laughs> And you're, and you're listening and going, yep, yeah, got that story. We've, heard this story. We've heard this story. We know the moral of this story with no problem. You know, uh, we, know, we know this moral. We know exactly where this story's going. And Jesus gets to the end of the story and the son's forgiven. And they're, and they're going, uh, hold it. That's not the way the story goes. You know, at least in their mind. I don't think anybody really stood up and, and, and said that. But in their mind, they're going, that's not the way the story goes. This, this son is supposed to be, you know, made a servant until he proves that he's going to be a good son. Now, what father would forgive him? You know, you know, especially when this starts out, the son wishing that he was dead. Give me my inheritance. I wish you were dead. I want my inheritance now. And the father forgives him when he shows back up. 
that blew their minds. All right? Uh, and Jesus said, I'm giving you those kind of stories. Stories that you're going to, you're, you're going to know, but you're going to, and I'm going to give them the twist to turn them over to me. Then he goes to, is there iniquity in Gilead? Now, Gilead is the area that is to the east of Galilee. It's up on the north, uh, northern portion, just over on the other side of the Jordan River. It's very lush. It's very, very green. And he says, is there iniquity in Gilead? The answer that he's going to give, yes. <laughs> Surely they are vanity. They are following emptiness. He says, they sacrifice bullocks in Gilead, which is not the place that they were supposed to sacrifice. They're supposed to sacrifice... Gilead and Gilgal. Uh, uh, Gilead. I said Gilead. They sacrifice bullocks in Gilgal. Yeah. Starts at Gilead. Oh, Gilgal. Okay, yeah. yeah. Which is a mountain in Gilead. Oh, okay. Um, and he says... Their altars are as heaps in the furrows of the fields. This is kind of an interesting picture. He says, they have altars. And he says, they are like having a heap of rocks in the middle of your plowed field. In your plowed field, you did not have heaps of rocks. You did everything you could to get the rocks out of your plowed fields. And God is saying, these altars in, in Gilgal or Gilead are like having stones in the middle of your plowed field. In other words, they don't belong there. You're not worshiping me the way you're supposed to. And this is the way the world is. Sometimes they'll think they're worshiping God. You know, even if they're not living in outward, really bad sin, you know what, I'm basically a good people, a person. I only sin once or twice an hour. You know, or you know, most of them won't even go that far. I only sin once or twice a day. Or once, you know, just a couple of times a week. You know, and it's like, okay, I'm glad. I, I have trouble making it through an hour without sin or even a, even a few minutes without sin. I'm glad that you can go that long without sin. But this is exactly what they did. We're worshiping God our way. You know, we're going to do things my way. <laughs> uh, you know, your way is going to get you in trouble. My way is going to get me in trouble. I need to be doing things God's way. And he's basically saying, you know, hey, those altars up there, they're like having a pile of rocks in the middle of your, of your plowed field that don't belong there is what he's telling them. Huh? Speed bumps. Yeah, speed bumps in the middle of your plowed field. Yeah. yeah, here I am plowing my field. Okay, lift the plow up over these rocks. Uh, go around the rocks, do something. The, the rocks are in the middle of my field. I'm too lazy to move them. Uh, it says... And now we go back to the history of Jacob. <laughs> he goes, and Jacob fled into the country of Syria, and Israel served for, for a wife, and for a wife did he keep sheep. So Israel and Jacob are the same person. Okay? Uh, so he goes up to Syria, meets Laban, falls in love with, his, with Rachel. Yeah, Rachel. <laughs> I always mix up Rachel and Rebecca. Rachel. And tells Laban, you know, hey, I don't have a dowry for you, but tell you what, I will work for you for seven years for Rachel. He works for seven years to get Rachel on the, on the bridal week. He ends up going to bed with Leah. Sure. Wakes up and finds out that, hey, you gave me the wrong girl. Laban tricked him. And he goes, uh, in our country, it's not right for the, 
for the younger to be married before the older. And then he goes, well, tell you what. If you serve me for another seven years, I'll give you Rachel as well. He goes, just fulfill this, this week of time with her, and then I'll give you Rachel. And so he ends up working 14 years to get Rachel, and it said it, to him it was like a day. Now, he got Rachel before he worked the, seven, the other 17, uh, seven years. And then after the seven years, Laban is really desperate because he's getting rich because of all the blessings that Jacob is having and starts having all kinds of games being played with him. And eventually, Jacob decides it's time to leave. I've worn out my welcome with Uncle Laban. All right. Um, but he goes up and he says he served for a wife and he kept the sheep. And he thought that it was just a day. You know, he just thought it was a short time. He was so much in love. And he ends up despising Leah and loving uh, Rachel. But by the end of his life, he had twisted it around. Rachel is buried at Bethlehem, outside of Bethlehem, and Leah is buried with him in the family plot. And as we look at the life of the two, we see that Leah was the godly one of the two. And I think he really, after a period of time, he went by looks at first. Rachel was the beautiful one. You know, she had the beauty and Leah was just a standard, you know, uh, I don't think she was ugly by any stand, you know, but he loved the beauty of Rachel. But over the years, when you read their story, there's not a whole lot talked about, but Rachel was basically a shrew. What little we're told about her, she's always complaining. And I think we see the godliness in her. Rachel is the one who stole the family idols from, from Laban. Uh, she's always complaining about something. You know, she complains, I don't have any children. Why aren't you giving me children? You know, and all these things. And I think that he eventually started recognizing the true inner beauty of Leah and really started shifting his love to her by the end of their life. And this is something that's important. You know, we don't want to judge by what we see. We want to judge by what somebody or something is in its true nature. And so... And it says, verse 13, he's now given another, another, another history lesson. And by a prophet of the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt, and by a prophet was he preserved. So here we're talking about Moses. So we've gone from Jacob to Moses, and he says, a prophet led you out of Egypt. And this goes back to the fact, he says, I keep sending you prophets. Are you listening to any of the prophets? Jacob was considered a prophet. Moses was considered a prophet that turned their people around. And he's saying, these people were listened to. Are you listening to the prophets I'm sending to you? Are you going to follow them? A prophet led Israel out of Egypt. A prophet kept them during their wandering wilderness time for 40 years. And then he says, Ephraim provoked him to anger most bitterly. This is provoked God. God is being provoked. Now, we don't really like to think about an angry God. But you know, there are times when God gets angry. He gets angry at the sin of people. Now, he is very patient. He is very merciful. 
but there comes that time when he says, enough is enough. 1,400 years and, and Noah was told, build an ark. I'm destroying the world because of how sinful they're getting. He destroys Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sinfulness. He takes Canaan and destroys Canaan because of their evilness. He takes Israel out, the northern kingdom out, because of their evil activities. He takes the southern kingdom out because of their evil activities. He does it again at the end of the, at the, end of the Roman Empire in 70 AD when, when he says, I've had enough of you. There's coming the tribulation period where he's going to take the church out and for seven years everybody is going to be judged for their sinful nature. And this God says that they will be like the days of Noah. Everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. And we are so close to that. I don't know how much further we can go before God says, enough is enough. Because we have everybody doing what is right in their own eyes. And the sad thing is how many Christians are doing what is right in their own eyes and trying to justify their actions rather than walking the way God wants them to. And God is going to say, time is done. It is time for the judgment to fall. And then we'll have the millennial kingdom. And then one more time of rebellion. And then it'll be over uh, for eternity. And he says, he provoked him bitterly. Therefore shall he leave his blood upon him. And his reproach shall his Lord return upon, upon you. Their blood. Now this can mean many things involved with this. It could be the blood of their harm they've done to others stays on them as, as, as a sinful nature. It could mean that their sacrifices don't mean anything to God and the blood that's being sacrificed does not cover anything, which is probably true too. And it's probably both of them. Your evil is sticking on you and the sacrifices you're making don't mean a thing. You're shedding blood and I'm not acknowledging it. And this is what happened even in Jerusalem at the temple of God, there were times when because they were not following God correctly, God is saying, your sacrifices don't mean anything. I want obedience. You know, null and void. You, you, you're offering this sacrifice and I'm looking at it. You don't care what it is. You're not following me. It's, it's worthless. And this is the problem when we're trying to please God in our own strength. You know, God, I just want to, I, I want to bless you myself. This goes all the way back to Cain and Abel. Abel offers a blood sacrifice to God. Cain takes the works of his hands, his own righteousness, in other words, and offers it to God and gets mad that God did not accept his work and goes out and kills his brother. How many times do we try to give God our work rather than what he wants? And this is going to be something we have to be careful of as Christians. Sometimes we forget that we need to do things God's way. And we'll get wrapped up in, well, God, you know, I did all these things for you. I visited the, the sick. I, gave, I, went to the, I went to the prisons. I clothed the naked. I fed, I fed the needy. And God says, that's all wonderful, but did you know me? Did you do things my way? Did you follow after me? And if we follow after him, we're going to do all those good works but we're not doing them just to be fruits and vegetables on an altar saying, God, look at all the good stuff that I do. God, you are just so lucky that I am your servant. Look at all these good things that I do for you. Now, we really don't come out and say that, but isn't that what our heart says many times? 
God, you're just so glad, you, you are just so lucky you have me. And God says, well, I really don't need you. You know, I don't need all the stuff you think is so great. You know, uh, and here he says, your reproach, your taunts, your scorn, your shame, your disgrace will be returned, turned back on you. You will get what you deserve from all of this. All those iniquities that aren't sin are going to come back to you. All those times you sacrificed without really sacrificing to God will come back to you. All the times that you've harmed people will come back on you. This is going to be when, when people stand at the white throne judgment and they get to look down at themselves and see all their quote-unquote righteousness and they're going to stand before God in the court of heaven and look down and say, God, you know, look at all the good things they do as they look down and see filthy rags and realize I've got a problem. Here I, here I am standing before God with all the best that I can do and it is nothing. And God is going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. And he's also at that time going to show them every time they rejected him. Israel was going to be able to be shown every time they rejected him. He said, I've sent prophet after prophet. I've sent vision after vision. I've sent all these things to you, and you have rejected me. You may have had good reasons. You might have thought everything was going well, but you rejected me, and there's going to be a judgment to come. God always brings judgment eventually. Always. And we need to be able to really understand that. There's consequences to our actions. And when we're his children, those consequences hit a lot faster than when we're not his children. Because God says, I love you, so I'm going to make sure you're disciplined now so that you get your life put together. Discipline always should result in obedience afterwards. Or the discipline wasn't hard enough. And this is the thing that people don't really understand. Discipline has to hurt. Now, there's a lot of people who say, well, you shouldn't hurt, you shouldn't hurt somebody... You know, well, I'm sorry, I have to give you a discipline that's hard enough that you don't want to do it again. Whatever that means, whether it's physical for young children, physical, physical punishment works. When they get older, physical punishment doesn't usually work. Taking away their favorite movie, their favorite night out, you know, uh, restricting them. Maybe for some kids, keeping them out of their bedroom. <laughs> sorry, you are in restriction. You cannot go into your bedroom except to sleep. Now, you're almost punishing yourself in that process, but the kid will be punished as well. They have to spend all their time with you. Uh, you know, but you understand what I'm saying. God will make sure that our punishment is severe enough that we look at it and say, well, last time I did this, this happened. Do I, do I want to have that happen again? I don't think so. That is what punishment should do. It should be bad enough, hard enough for me to sit back and say, I don't think I want to do that again. Huh? That explains a lot of what we go through. God, I haven't listened to you. Oh, now you're going to discipline me. Now I'm going to go through some hard times. But the problem is many times we don't understand that the discipline has a consequence and we have to be able to figure out what that consequence is for. Uh, most of the time we go, I'm just having a really bad week. Everything is going wrong. Did it have anything to do with me sinning last week <laughs> that I didn't repent from? <laughs> so we need to be able to understand, and this is why I say so many times, when life is going hard for us, our first 
thing to do is say, is this a consequence for something that I have done? Do I deserve what I'm going through? Without being too introspective, because technically we could deserve anything. But we look and say, yeah, I really did. I, I did this, and this is the result for it. At that point, we, we confess our sin, we, re, we, we confess, and we just endure the consequence. Well, that was the next step. If I can't, if I look at my life, then I can't find anything that you know truly deserves whatever's coming my way. And again, we're not perfect. If we were really to try to tear our life apart, we'd find we deserved everything. But there are times when we say, "God, I am just suffering because I'm following you." And again, we go through. God, help me get through this. I'm trusting in you. The answer is the same either way. God, I am trusting you. So it really doesn't matter why it's coming, but the reason why we want to look at why is so that we can repent, confess and repent of the sin and, and try not to do it again. Otherwise, we're going to keep doing it and have consequences a lot. Right? But the answer is always the same. God, help me endure this. I want to trust in you. I want to, I want to have faith in you. Whether I deserve it or don't deserve it, the, the ultimate answer is, God, I trust you. But... I do need to look at it and say, have I done something that deserves this? And if I have, then I say, God, I confess. I confess I did this. I'm going to repent. Help me not to do it again. And that brings us back into fellowship with God and in a walk with God to help us go forward. Other than that, we get it piled on us. If we're not his child, we get it piled on us. And eventually, we're going to answer if we don't turn to him at some point. And God's purpose is to keep piling on the guilt of our sin, the, you know, without us getting a hard heart, which is where people go oftentimes, and the, the consequences of the sin, trying to draw us to him and saying, are you ready to come to me? And that's when sometimes we just speak the right word of comfort to somebody and they're finally ready. Maybe it's the same word we've said to them a hundred times before, but they go you know what, I am feeling the pressure of this guilt. I am feeling the pressure of all these consequences, and I am sick and tired. There has to be a better way. And you get to minister to them at that moment, and all of a sudden they respond. And for us, we have to remember, our job is simple. We are to plant seeds. And if the seed's already been planted, our, our planting may just be watering that seed. And then eventually, we might be very fortunate to actually reap the harvest. Now, want to be very careful when I say that. Don't get jealous that somebody else reaps the seeds that you planted. All right? I've had that happen where I've, where I've had the pleasure of being able to lead somebody to the Lord and had people get jealous. I've talked to that person a hundred times and you get to be the one that walked them to the Lord. Now, God answered the heart of my, my great desire. I did not want church or a Sunday school worker to lead my kids to the Lord. I got to lead all four of my kids to the Lord. That was my heart's desire. I did not want anybody in the church to get that privilege. And God did answer that, prayer, that, that, that desire of my heart. But I had seen over the years of working with children, there were many parents that expected the church to be the one that led their kid to the Lord. And I'm going, I don't know about this. I, I, don't, I don't want, this is the greatest thing I want. My, I want to be the one that leads my kids to the Lord. And God gave me that. The only thing that I wish I had pushed for was to, to baptize my children. I wish that I had actually done that. Most churches won't let that happen. But I believe that, that, a, that a parent should be able to baptize their children. Yeah, I saw a pastor able to baptize his 
Well, I think it's important. I mean, if you actually are the one, you're the parents, and you baptize, you've led your son, your son, your daughter to the Lord, you should be the one that baptizes them as far as, as, far as I'm, if, you, if you have a desire to. Because there's nothing in the Bible that says pastors have to baptize. It says, make disciples and baptize them. And that's to anybody who's made the disciple. So if there's a relationship and somebody wants to be the one that baptizes somebody in this church, we'll talk about it and make sure you have the right attitude and all that, but I have no problem with it. Uh, now, I enjoy baptizing people. I mean, I have fun doing it, but I'm not being at a place where I have to do it. Now, if somebody's doing it for the wrong reason, I'm probably going to do it. But if they want to say, I led this person to the Lord. I'm the one that, that has been discipling them. Okay, let's let you baptize this person if, as long as they're willing for that to be the case. Now, some people want a pastor. They think, it's some, they think the pastor is somebody special and the, the baptism is going to be better from a, pa, pa, a pastor. But it isn't something that has to be done by a pastor. You know, it just has to be because everybody was told, bring them to the Lord and baptize them. So... We want to be able to bring people to Christ and then disciple them. That's the next step. After somebody gets saved, the, the discipleship begins. And we teach them how to walk with God and how to make better decisions by being with them. The disciples, the 12 disciples, walked with Jesus 24-7. Where he went, they went. The 500 that walked with him didn't walk with him 24-7. They all went home wherever home was. But there were a small group of people that he spent all his time working with and making them understand how to walk and, and live with him. Our job is to make disciples. And many people think their job is to get people to come to church. Now, I like the idea of people coming to church. You know, and maybe they'll get saved if they come to church. But our job is to make disciples get them in saved and then make disciples teach them how to walk with God and we've got a book to help people get started on that walk with God real simple six less I think it's five or six lessons to help people walk with God but we just want to keep our focus on our goal is not just to birth a bunch of people or get them to come to church our job is to get them saved and discipled Coming to church does not save you. Uh, walking through the doors does not save you. Coming to church every day of the week is not going to save you. It's turning to Christ. And I've heard too many people, try, their whole purpose is to get them to come to church. Uh, and I'm not going to be overly opposed to that. I understand what they're doing. But are we giving them the gospel? Are we telling them that they need Jesus? And then, most importantly, you know, when we give them the gospel, are we asking them, do you want to turn your life over to Christ? That is important. It, it is so often that people are ready to pray the, say the prayer for Jesus, and nobody asks them. They know they're a sinner, they know they need Jesus, and they don't know how to do it, and we don't tell them how. You know, it would be like somebody trying to sell you windows. You really need these windows. Your windows are broken. You, know, you need windows to help open this and you're all ready to sign on the dotted line, and they walk out. Now, no salesman is going to not offer you the sale, but this is what we do as Christians all the time. We tell them how much they need Jesus, and then we don't ask them to, turn to come to Jesus. Oh, well, you know, if you want Jesus, you'll figure out how to do it. 
what a sad way to do it because most people are not going to figure out how to do it if we don't share how to. And many times we'll bring them right up to the right up to the point of decision and then not ask them to finish. And we need to be able to say, do you want to know Jesus? And if you learn to start asking that question, you will be surprised how many people are going to say yes. It will shock you. How many people will say yes if you just ask? You've given them the gospel. Would you like to know Jesus today? Not everybody, but many will say, yes, I think I want that. Here's what you have to do. You have to confess that you're a sinner. You have to accept Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross and ask him to come into your heart. And now we'll get you start reading the Bible and we'll get you discipled and let them go from there. I would love to see our church filled with new Christians. It is wonderful to see a church filled with new Christians and how excited they are. Sarah has seen that at Set Free. They have new Christians everywhere. And new Christians keep you excited. New Christians do stupid things. <laughs> you know, they come up with some really crazy meanings for the Bible. But you know, they're in the Bible. They're reaching out for God. They're going out and telling their parents, you've got to get saved or you're going to hell. Not really a diplomatic way to share with them, but they're excited. They need to learn how to share the gospel better but they're excited. They want to know God and they want to know him intimately and they need to be discipled and, and, and brought up. Inhibitions to praise God openly and not worry about embarrassing yourself or whatever is so much better when you're around new Christians. Yeah, because they're all, they're all excited. They're not, they're not holding back. Right. You know, they want to worship God. They want to get excited because they have a reason to get excited. Now, we as older Christians have a reason to get excited, but a lot of times we're going, well, you know what? I don't want to be the only one raising my hands. I don't want to be the only one that's singing out really loud. I don't want to be the only one in our church standing for worship, you know, uh, and all the things that go on with this. <laughs> but all of this comes down to, are we really truly serving God and seeking him? Are we listening to his word and seeking after him? And we're going to end here because I went way longer than normal. Lord, we thank you for this evening. Help us to make decisions that are godly. Help us to make decisions that seek after you and to share with others. Lord, help us to listen to your word and respond with forgiveness and honor to others and to ask for confession and, and repentance when we sin. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please today make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com. Or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona. 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.